Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Gary Hirschberg, CEO of Stonyfield Farm, speaking about stirring it up, how to make money and save the world. I'm going to uh, plunge right in and share with you um, this perspective, and I'm going to try to do so in a way that gives us some time for some conversation. You may know, some of you may know, uh, I spoke at SOM earlier today uh, without the slides, and I know that uh, generally uh, this, this, this provokes a lot of discussion. I hope that we'll get to some. Uh, let me just say uh, quickly by way of background, um, the, to quickly close the gap, I grew up in New Hampshire as a child of uh, uh, shoe manufacturers and a grandson of shoe manufacturers, and so my world was uh, one of uh, watching the pretty colors go out the back of the factories into the river, and I would think that that was beautiful until when I was an adolescent, the river actually caught on fire. And uh, I, I uh, also told this story earlier that I, I was a ski racer growing up. I spent a lot of my time in the New Hampshire White Mountains, and much of my time every year on Mount Washington, where on a clear day you could see uh, the Atlantic Ocean and uh, 60, 70 miles away. That view has not been seen uh, since uh, I was a child because owing to the fact that we're downwind from all of the sort of bad behaviors that uh, translate into uh, airborne airborne, uh, pollutants. And so I I actually never dreamt that I would be in business. I went off to college, uh, Hampshire College, um, and uh, and this was, you know, essentially the 60s. It was 1972. I went off to... uh, uh, try to get as far from business as I possibly could. And when I arrived there, um, as you probably have in your economics classes, I ran into uh, this concept, which I think uh, I don't need to teach to this audience, but this, this uh, sort of mythological idea that uh, there are direct consequences of our economic activities, which if they're not on our income statement or our balance sheet, in economic terms, they don't exist. And so coming from a perspective of already thinking business was the source of all things bad, I'd learned that, in fact, uh, climate change, uh, epidemic obesity, epidemic rates of cancer, uh, many of the problems that we face, hypoxias in the Gulf of Mexico, many of the uh, results of our sort of linear, narrow view of the world have resulted in these things called externalities that nobody's accountable for. So I grew in college to even hate business even more as I as I encountered this myth. And the first, uh, my first professors had been, uh, this book had uh, just come out called The Limits to Growth, and I, I'm sure some of you know about it. Uh, Dennis and Dana Meadows, who I later became very close friends with. Uh, Dana, unfortunately, passed away some time ago. Uh, this is a 2004 uh, slide from, uh, a slide from the 2004 version of the 72 study. And essentially what they showed in 72, and, and, and the 04 study only validated uh, the results from 32 years earlier, is that if humans uh, continue to uh, consume natural resources and uh, produ- have an industrial output, f- uh, produce food, but most importantly grow our population at the rates that would logically continue from uh, the beginning of the 20th century, then we would reach a point, they concluded, somewhere in the middle of the 21st century, right about here, where you would have a peaking out of the productivity of most of these systems and a very calamitous and sudden and very precipitous drop-off in, in productivity and in, obviously in economic output. And in fact, the only line that the model showed would continue to go up and shows uh, would be pollution. 
of course, CO2 and methane being two prime examples of pollutants. And, uh, of course, I, I was studying this stuff right here, and I was an immortal 17-year-old, and the thought that you know, this happening in 2050, it was like forever uh, from that then. But as you all know, it's now very much in your lives, my children's lives as well. And so uh, I, I got even sort of more depressed as I was encountering all this uh, wonderful data. Uh, and here's another way of looking at externalities graphically. Um, we know this is a wonderful, if you've never been to World Mapper, this is a great site because they have projections that, where they expand and contract the scale of nations based on all kinds of indices. You can look at literacy, you can look at uh, poverty rates, you can look at uh, uh, alcohol consumption. There's just endless of these slides. And if you look from a population point of view, you can see we're, we're fairly skinny over here in this hemisphere. But if you then uh, project based on climate, uh, you'll see that, in fact, we're quite obese. And this happens to be O2. If you ran it, as Dan knows, if you ran it in 08, uh, you would find that, in fact, China would be the same girth as the U.S., in fact, slightly bigger, as it may turn out. Uh, but the point is, is that um, in contrast to our relative size as a population, we are you know, enormous consumers. And um, putting it differently, if the rest of the world consumed natural resources the way the U.S. does, we would need three planet Earths to support us. And that's now. And that's without the nine billion who will be residing here uh, by the end of this century. And the reality is when you start to look at the world through this lens of externalities and, and, and through the lens of sort of mythologies that have guided much of our economic development, uh, the myth that we can continue to extract from the earth in our linear way, the myth that we can create something called waste, which of course doesn't even exist in nature, uh, the myth that we can send it to a place called away, which is also like Oz, uh, non-existent, um, the, and, of course, climate change is evidence that there is no such place as a way. Um, the myth that really that the economy is, that, that, that the environment is a subsidiary of our economy, which is a weird thing to say, but frankly, it's subconsciously, that's the way we humans have come to see it. And in fact, as you know, it's absolutely the reciprocal. The, the, the economy is only made possible by the resources you know, given to us on this planet. But as you look at these myths, you start to encounter all kinds of other just wild uh, recognition, like the fact that in the U.S. we waste more energy than the entire Japanese economy uses. Um, uh, or the myth that uh, we can view our topsoil uh, as a, not a, uh, the equity that it really is but uh, for us as humans, but as a substrate into which we can inject annual doses of chemical fertility synthesized by extracting from the Earth's crust fossil fuels. And what ends up happening as a result of that is uh, in not only applying annual doses of fertility, but ignoring the fact that soil um, must be protected, must, we must stop soil from eroding. An argument could be made that all of civilization, every civil, human civilization, has risen and fallen on the strength of its topsoils. You could go back to Egypt, Rome, Mesopotamia, and see, in fact, that when these nation states d destroyed their soils, they destroyed their economic integrity. And, um, uh, and, and there's arguments that we're doing this as well. In the U.S. right now, we've lost one, one half of the topsoils that were here when Lewis and Clark made their way across. Uh, in this area, uh, here in the southern uh, central part of our nation under the panhandle, there's a 
large aquifer of fossil water known as the Ogallala Aquifer, it's not replenished by rain, that has been depleted by close to 40% in the last 100 years. Uh, so, uh, but here's another even more, all that's, aren't you happy you brought this depressing speaker here? <laughs> uh, but here's another even more, uh, I think, pernicious uh, finding. The net result of our notion that soil is a substrate into which we can put nitrogen and just put it in in the doses that we determine to be necessary for growing soy or corn or, or whatever, and then not worrying about erosion. The net consequence of that is that all of that soil and all that nitrogen flows into this largest tributary in the United States and out to the Gulf of Mexico, where there's a giant hypoxia uh, the size of Rhode Island, uh, growing by about 20% annually. And it's a result of nitrification. It's a result of uh, exactly what happened of eutrophication, of exactly what happens when we fail to contain or control nitrogen runoff into a local pond or river or stream. But we're doing it on a massive scale here. There's literally in this zone uh, no uh, bacteria, no plankton, no algae, no fish, no birds. And this is estuary. So uh, understand that while climate change is certainly the most, um, I think, clearly the most devastating environmental threat that we face, uh, destruction of our estuaries cannot be far behind. If we kill off the estuaries, which is, as you know, where all life comes from, uh, it's game over. And the scary part of this, again, and this is, this is sort of part of this mythology that we can extract, exploit, and, and send to this place called away, is that there's 146 of these hypoxias around the world. And they're all growing at roughly 20% a year. And they're exactly due to the same source, which is excessive use of nitrogen. So our linear thinking as a species, our failure to understand that the world is, in fact, a cyclic world, uh, has led us into what I call a cul-de-sac. It's not a dead end. We can come out of it. But it's a place uh, that uh, really uh, threatens uh, our species as well as our planet and certainly many other species. And you can take this same look through the lens of externalities at any, any of a number of uh, uh, conditions. For example, uh, this study, uh, we can talk about pesticide applications. We believe that in our linear way that we can... Uh, we should kill off anything that is threatening our crops, and so we apply poison to our land, which, of course, ultimately makes its way on a sort of sub-therapeutic level into our bodies. This study uh, shows you something terribly frightening. It was done on 78 um, three- to six-year-olds, half of whom were put on completely organic diets for 90 days and then put on completely uh, conventional diets for 90 days, and the other half switched. And what they discovered is that in only 90 days, the kids on conventional diets uh, found themselves with pesticide concentrations in their urine six times uh, what were in their di- the very same kids' uh, urine when they were on organic diets. In other words, in only 90 days. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a child born... This is a sample of pesticides used on typical bananas. I don't know how many of you had a banana this morning, but I'm sorry... Uh, but, you know, you don't have to read beyond, much beyond the fungicides to see that uh, this is not the way that we can continue to uh, exist as a species. I mean, a lot of people say to me, Gary, you know, organic is a quaint idea, but it's really not proven. And I would submit that it's actually the chemicals that are not proven, that we've been on about a 90 to 100-year experiment with the planet and with our bodies. And as they say in politics, the early returns are not good. Uh, every known cancer, while we're treating them better than ever before, they're all on the rise. 
And of course, we could talk about diabetes and, and obesity in the same context. In other words, these are externalities, and they really exist. And I got good and gloomy during college as I faced more and more and more of this stuff. And so by the time I left college, you can bet I was not going into business. I thought, that is it. You know? um, so I went to work at this place. This was an institute that I ultimately became the executive director of on Cape Cod. Um, and you're to be forgiven for not knowing, not knowing it because it's, it's dearly departed. But in its heyday, it was quite a remarkable place. In this large bio-shelter, which right, on a square foot basis was about the size of this auditorium, um, we discovered uh, that we could feed 10 families three meals a day, 365 days a year, using no fossil fuels. Uh, this was a 100% solar environment. And you could come in here in the middle of winter with four feet of snow outside, because we used to have winters back then. And um, you could find bananas, figs, papayas, birds, bees, and butterflies all thriving in this space. And what, the way it worked was, um, uh, you know, in, in conventional agriculture, another of the externalities, another of the mythologies, uh, is that we can, um, the, currently, uh, we invest about 13, depending on the crop, 13 to 20 calories of fossil fuel energy to get one calorie of food energy out. Uh, economists have a word for that. It's called bankruptcy. Uh, and uh, what we uh, set out to do here was to see if we could uh, not fight entropy but cooperate with it and try to lower the calorie input. And so the way it worked is we had these large tanks of water, five feet in diameter and five feet tall, that during the day stored the sun's radiation as it came through this membrane. And at night, those tanks, which were our thermal mass, would actually re-radiate and heat the building and keep it temperate for our crops, uh, even in the heart of winter. And uh, since we had tanks of water, we grew fish. And we grew 100 pounds of, uh, of uh, high-quality organic protein per tank per year. And of course, the, the fish would have their waste trickle, much like we have our nitrogen trickle through the Mississippi. And so we would pump it out and use it as a warm, nutrient-rich irrigant for the gardens. And since we had gardens and we had fish, we grew herbivorous plant-eating fish. We actually grew tilapia and took the weeds and the leafy matter from the garden and fed it back in to keep the fish going. And if this is starting to sound familiar, we used integrated uh, controls. Uh, this is a Encarcia formosa, a parasitic wasp that would parasitize green uh, white flies, which is a, a, a greenhouse pest. And um, would literally uh, parasitize and uh, kill them off. And we had all these natural controls. And of course, the birds, the bees, the butterflies were part of the natural control. And if all of this is sounding vaguely familiar, it's because we were really mimicking nature's complexity and just trying to take a clue. Instead of trying to compete with nature, trying to learn from her. And um, it, as I said, it was incredibly productive. Uh, we um, had uh, 25,000 people who would visit me, us every year. Uh, and by the way, all the electrical, I, my part in this was I built this windmill. I, I was a windmill builder in those days. And, and uh, we, uh, all the electrical and mechanical energy came from the wind. And it was really a, a very elegant solar-powered agricultural system. And I was very excited and proud of our work until I had this big kind of come down one day. I went to visit my mother, who was the senior buyer at the Epcot Center in Florida. I don't know how many of you have ever been there. Uh, but the Land Pavilion uh, was an exhibit funded then by Kraft Foods. Uh, this is it. And uh, they were showing how food would be grown in the future. And 
you might imagine they had a slightly different view than I did. Uh, this was sort of a monument to all the mythologies that I've been talking about, mining uh, the, 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 the river, there were sort of rivers of pesticides, herbicides, and chemical fertilizers flowing past the roots of these hydroponic crops, and the building was heated with natural gas and, and alternately cooled. Uh, other parts of the building were cooled with uh, electricity, uh, of course, nuclear-powered cooling. And, and so it was just this sort of like awful uh, monument to all things wrong about the way we approach the earth. But the most horrifying stat for me in that visit was not nothing I just told you. The most horrifying stat was that for the... Um, uh, for the 25,000 people who visited my institute every year, that's how many people went paid to go there every day. And uh, I came out of this exhibit, and this kid who had grown up hating business admitted to my mother, I said, I've got to become craft. I need to develop the power of business uh, that they have to reach people. And uh, this is how Stonyfield Farm got its start. I, at the time, my institute was in trouble, as were all ecological nonprofits, because Ronald Reagan had come into power and had slashed all funding for everything I believed in, <laughs> renewable energy, conservation, etc. I never dreamt I would say this, but here, as, we, as we come to the end of the Bush era, I actually miss Reagan, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, but anyhow, uh, we launched Stonyfield. I, had an, I was a trustee of a little organic farming school in New Hampshire, and, um, you know, we were struggling with the Reagan budget cuts. We would sit at every one of our board meetings, and my, my partner would serve this amazingly delicious yogurt. And we would eat the yogurt, and then one day one of us, we we're still not sure who, thought, said, let's start selling the yogurt to fund our little farm school. And, 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 and here I was, you know, motivated to go into business. And I just have to interrupt my flow and tell you that almost 14 years later to the day of starting, of, of visiting this, uh, Stonyfield passed craft in sales of yogurt. It's kind of a fun little anecdote. We uh, Thank you. Yes, that was a good day. Uh, actually, we're six times their size. Actually, the story gets even better because I was giving this talk in December, and my sister, who Dan knows, uh, who's our VP of Natural Resources, brought me a package of Kraft American Cheese Singles uh, Certified Organic. And so, and so the moment had arrived. I realized I didn't have to become Kraft. They're becoming me. It was very, very vindicating. Uh, but uh, this was Stonyfield. We, I determined to leave the nonprofit world and start this, uh, this business. Um, we joked that this is a place where we had 11 months of winter, one month of poor sledding. And I think it's not far uh, from that. This is Stonyfield today. As Dan mentioned, it's quite a big company. It's 300, we'll do $325 million this year. We support nearly 1,000 family farms, 500 employees, and so forth. Uh, but this was the question we asked at the farm back in 83. And by the way, this is our 25th birthday today, April 9th. So it's very nice. Yes, thank you. Um, there was a long period where I never dreamt I'd get there. I, in fact, uh, uh, the first seven years, we were so incredibly naive and, and frankly, stupid. Uh, we'd compromised on nothing. We were, you know, basically eco-fascist. The, the, the thing with our business was, the problem was there was like Dannon and Yoplait. And then there were all these little kind of organic hippie brands made in Vermont or New Hampshire by people who lived in their teepee with their wet goat, you know. And, 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 and we were like the ninth of those. And, uh, uh, and Frank here is from Ithaca where brown cow got started. And, you know, it was, there was most brown cow, they were mostly selling pot. In fact, the yogurt was kind of a front. Uh, um, 
I'll tell you one very funny and quick story. We were trying at this time to get into Bread and Circus, which, was, which is now Whole Foods, Whole Foods in Boston. And, uh, you know, the buyer there had, like I said, like 11 of these yogurts, hippie, sun dance, moon dance, dance dance, I don't know, all these. And, uh, and we tried to get in, and we could not get in. This is my first marketing lesson. 1984, on this, on this lawn, I had a bunch of my Cambridge friends up uh, for, to celebrate my 30th birthday. And I blew out the candles, and they said, uh, uh, Gary, um, give a speech. And I said, well, you know, I just finished milking. We blew out the candles, and... And uh, I said, uh, look, this is wonderful that you've all come to see me, but uh, if you really want to give me a great birthday present, go back to uh, Bread and Circus and ask for our yogurt. That was a Sunday. On Wednesday, this is a true story. On Wednesday, the buyer from Bread and Circus called and said, Gary, I don't know what's going on, but demand has gone through the roof. Uh, get that yogurt in here immediately, which we did that day. And we became the number one selling yogurt uh, about a month later and have been now for 24 uh, years. But I digress. This was the question we asked ourselves in uh, 83. And as you can see from this chart, the answer is clearly yes. Um, we could and did, in fact, build quite a business. It's, any, any company out there would envy this growth rate. I, I would sort of challenge you to name another business that's enjoyed this kind of year-after-year year trajectory. And um, you know, this is our size. Uh, we, we are 80% uh, of all organic yogurt sold is us. Uh, we are the largest organic yogurt company in the world. We're the most recognized organic brand name in the world. Uh, and uh, we have all these other sub-brands. Um, and uh, again, it's been, uh, it's been quite a nice run. Now, let me uh, tell you, though, that this run has not been po would not have been possible were it not for our investments in sustainability. Uh, what Dan credits me with as being visionary was nothing... Uh, in fact, more than survival. I, I, I will be the first to tell you that most, most of the knowledge that I have gained uh, about this whole notion of business interfacing with the environment has been in hindsight. You know, Churchill had this great line. He said, wisdom is something you get just after you need it. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's sort of true in my case. He also had this great uh, line, which is really true of our early years. He said, uh, success is the ability to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> And that, that was definitely us. Uh, you know, I, I'm the first to confess I'm a pathological optimist. But um, what you need to know about this slide uh, is that uh, I should tell you a tad more. We have grown, the industry, during this time that we've grown 26.3%, the industry has grown 4% annually. So we've grown six or seven times uh, faster than the industry. Our profits have kept up with this growth. Our net profits are at the top of the industry, better than Dannon's, for example, as a percentage of sales. And yet, our advertising budget is between one-tenth and one-fourteenth on a percentage of sales basis. In other words, for you non-business types, typically uh, in, in uh, consumer products, you spend about 12 to 14% of your revenue on advertising. Uh, Stonyfield's average over this period is between one and two percent. And so you can say, well, how'd they do that? And by the way, just as an organic company, it might be obvious to you, but let me say if it isn't, our gross margins, that is the amount of money left after our cost of goods, is 10 points, 1,000 basis points worse than theirs. So at the gross margin line, coming out of the back of my factory, my product uh, costs 10 gross margin points more than theirs did, and yet I make it up below the line and become more profitable than them. Okay, hold that thought, and you'll understand why I'm telling you that in a second. 
So um, when one is looking at this idea of integrating sustainability, you have to understand we had to do it. Uh, we were committed to organics. That meant we were committed to making sure our family farmers were rewarded. Family farmers are basically an endangered species. They have no place at the table of our nation's economy. They're seen, if, 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 a, if a dairy farmer produces a, uh, a, a bull calf, uh, he might be lucky, she might be lucky to get $5 for that calf, which will turn into about uh, $850 uh, by the time it gets to the restaurant uh, for veal. And, um, uh, or to the consumer for veal. Uh, the farmer, and this is true of every commodity, the farmer sees a very small part of the food dollar that we all pay. And so by committing ourselves to paying farmers a correct price, this meant we had to make up this, our deficit excuse me, below the line by um, finding efficiencies. Now it so happens that one of the first places you go to find efficiency is you go to reduce your carbon footprint. Why? Because at $112 a barrel, which it was this morning, let alone at $26 a barrel, which it was when George W. Bush took office uh, seven years ago, um, you uh, have to understand that this is probably the most inflationary cost that anybody in commerce faces. And so let me talk for a minute about climate change, but I'll bring it back to economics. Um, anybody who's trying to be serious about addressing climate change must engage in these four steps. And while offsets, and we could talk about this in the Q&A, Q well, offsets are, of course, controversial. A friend of mine calls them a morning-after pill. Um, nevertheless, they are going to be a part of the mix because we all produce CO2. Uh, we all burn fossil fuels. You know, my name is Gary. I'm a polluter. Uh, and uh, uh, so offsetting, even after I've reduced dramatically, I'm going to have to offset. Um, but drilling into this, so, so Stonyfield has engaged in a very methodical approach. My, my own, by the way, I graduated with uh, my degree was actually in dendroclimatology. So I, I actually came into business knowing something about this stuff. Um, and um, so we did a whole series of life cycle analyses and carbon footprints over the years. And um, let me just spend a moment on carbon, offs carbon uh, reductions. Because this is not, I'm finding, well understood, although Dan certainly understands this. When, when you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint, whether you're a campus or a company or an individual driving, you have to realize that there are three scopes. Um, the first scope is what you're directly burning, uh, the vehicle, internal combustion engine, your own fuel. Uh, the second scope is the purchased, of the, the, the purchased electricity, which, of course, is to say any time you flick a light switch, there's a puff of smoke somewhere or a dose of radioactivity introduced. But there's a direct link, and there's a footprint whether we see it or not. Um, but then there's the third scope, which is actually where the action is at. Um, the supply chain, the transportation, the incoming materials. And I don't care what company, what campus you are, um, the stuff that you're bringing in, the carbon footprint of these, these seats and this carpeting and this building is far greater than the carbon footprint that this building will produce in its lifetime of operations. That, that's a fact. And... Walmart, when Walmart does amazing things, which it has been doing, despite maybe its problems in other areas, on carbon footprinting, it will do nothing greater than uh, getting suppliers to reduce the size of their packaging and so forth, because as everyone has a supply chain. And this, in fact, is where it's at. And in 19, when we first did our first carbon footprint in, um, in 1994, uh, we measured scopes one and two because we incorrectly thought that our manufacturing facility was the lion's share of our footprint. 
we thought, you know, we're burning a lot of natural gas. We're sending the CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, and uh, we're, people are driving to work and so on. Uh, as it turned out, uh, we were quite wrong. In fact, unless you address all three scopes, uh, you're not really, we're not going to address the problem as a species. And uh, to illustrate that, this is a snapshot a segment of our carbon map. If, I, if you had the real carbon map up, it would run easily the length of this wall, probably longer. We have mapped every input and output in our business, our employee commute, uh, our packaging, our fruit, our milk, uh, our cows, and of course, as you see here in this call-out, our transportation. I, I know the footprint of a cup of yogurt sold at Stop and Shop in New Haven and one sold at Ralph's in San Diego. Um, and uh, this has yielded a lot of very important insights in where we can uh, sort of fish where the fish are. And um, to put this in more graphic terms, when we proudly, we were the first manufacturer in America to offset 100% of our CO2 emissions from our manufacturing in 94. But as it turns out, that's what we offset. Uh, essentially, in, in terms of our total footprint, we offset a rounding error's worth. Not, not to say it's unimportant, but uh, when you add scope three, uh, as I said, this is where it's at. And uh, here's the slide I told you about earlier, Dan. When you, uh, th so this right here is what we offset, and it was important. It's obviously a bigger footprint than my transportation and my commuter miles and the sugar and so on, but it's one heck of a lot smaller than my finished product transport, which is dwarfed by my packaging, which is blown away by the milk. And this is every aspect of the milk. This is uh, the grain production. This is the manure management. This is the fact that methane is 22, times, uh, 22 to 24 times more impactful as a greenhouse gas than CO2. Uh, this is the cows themselves. And by the way, I mean both ends. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, what we learned over the course of the, our mapping as we've become more and more humbled and sophisticated uh, is that we could reduce our carbon footprint of our milk by 50% by just taking the grain out. If we could get all of our dairy farms to be 100% grass-fed, uh, we would be, have 50% of the footprint because the, the impact of the feed, everything, the tilling, the fertilizing, the shipping, the milling, the harvesting, the husking, the, and the impact on cows, who, by the way, are not biologically uh, devised to eat grain. They're... they're herbivores, not grainivores, if that's a word, um, we could reduce the footprint another 50% by converting the manure from a methane uh, source to a CO2 source by composting. You can actually inoculate manures with bacteria that will consume the methane to CO2. We, we, by putting methane digesters on the farms, we could reduce that even further, and so on and so forth. And so by being more realistic about our footprint, we've been able to attack it. And Indeed, we've, we, we have invested, and, and my book goes into all of this, um, we've invested uh, literally millions in trying to um, track our carbon footprint, trying to get reductions. Uh, Jenna here, one of, our, one of your alums of uh, 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 School of Forestry, uh, is up uh, now doing a ton of these measures. Every time I need to know what, something, what the footprint is, she, she's the one who tells me. This is Jenna right here. You should wave in case you guys want to ask questions. Proud Yale uh, alum, uh, I think. Um, uh, anyhow, we've done a ton of things, and we've made you know big uh, improvements. Uh, and I'll, I'll just maybe illustrate. I'll skip this. Uh, well, let me let me just say a word about this. Uh, you know, we're. I started talking about externalities. We're 
over this hump, if you know Hubbard's Peak. And I, if you don't, I'll tell you about it later. But, you know, cheap oil is over. <laughs> Um, it does not take a genius to figure out that if it was $26 a barrel seven years ago and it's 112 this morning, where is it going? Uh, it's going to 150 or 200 And when that happens, everything changes. The economics that have been favorable to me thus far, uh, when you see up here, you know, this 33% reduction, which has generated millions of dollars for me, it's only going to be more uh, now. And by the way, every... This is the curves of every known renewable that's available to us. So uh, please, let's not uh, talk about, uh, um, uh, I mean, nuclear will have a place in the transition, but we don't, the efficiency and renewables are clearly the future. And to illustrate that point, let me tell you about one of the examples of the many things we've done, because I think this is a metaphor for my message to you today. Um, we exceeded the capacity of our local wastewater treatment plant uh, about uh, five years ago. And the nor I talked earlier about the mythologies. One of our mythologies as a species is that uh, the way we treat our biological waste is we have this belief system that the solution to pollution is dilution. You know, add enough water, oxygenate it, each of which takes energy and therefore produces CO2, uh, and then send it to that place called away. And um, when we... Um, uh, asked the town authorities in, in uh, Londonderry, New Hampshire, what do we do with the sludge? Because we determined um, this uh, a waste treatment plant at our scale was going to produce a truckload of sludge every week. Uh, and we asked our town, well, what do you do with it? They said, well, it's very easy. You send it to Vermont. That's their <laughs> definition of a way. And I, I'm guessing Vermonters send it to New Hampshire. I haven't quite... So we might have a loop here. But, but either way, there's, a, there's a, obviously a, an energy usage in, shipping, in, in, in loading up the sludge, trucking it, and disposing of it, not to mention a cost to my business, to be brutally blunt. And so we, I couldn't do that. And so we built an anaerobic facility that is a methane digester. And instead, uh, as you see, I got dramatic reductions in energy operating costs. I haven't, had, I haven't even had a single truckload. Well, actually, that's not true. We just had a minor, a short a little failure. I'm not allowed to say this anymore. Uh, of the system because we overloaded it with BOD, and so we actually did have to haul four truckloads. But that's the four truckloads in two years of running it, not a truckload a week, and that was a, a, a one-time incident. But the point is, I haven't had the sludge haulage. So the net is, this thing costs 17% more. As you see here, it costs a half a million dollars more. I, I misspoke this morning, I realized. Um, but this is the savings that it's, gen oops, that it's generating over uh, the first 10 years, almost $4 million net. And by the way, that savings was calculated at $78 a barrel oil. I realized that this morning. We have to update this. Because at 112 it's probably 6 I don't know, $5 million. anyways. So anyhow, suffice it to say, we have been mining our P&L for examples like this. By getting the lids, just the, remember that we used to have tops on our yogurt cups? By getting rid of those, look at, look at the savings. But I'll just, in the interest of time, just draw your, to this line. Forgetting all the virtue and, and, and principle of reducing our plastics, we've saved ourselves a million bucks a year. And I would guess right now at $112 a barrel, that's probably $2 million a year because these calculations were done six years ago. Or by switching over to form, fill, and seal packaging where instead of bringing in preformed cups, we bring in rolls of plastic stock and mold them on the line and then fill them. The issue with packaging, if you're thinking recycling as the holy... Well, forget it. Recycling is, a, is the failure to have reduced and reused. Recycling, we, we, you know, 
we will get 5% of plastics back from recycling. And I'm not saying it's unimportant, because like offsetting, we, we have to engage in it. But the, where the action is at is reducing the footprint, because mass equals embodied energy. We, uh, a study at the University of Michigan told us that 14 years ago in our life cycle analysis. The lighter the weight of the package, the lower the climate footprint. End of discussion. And so by reducing that, uh, you do uh, dramatic things and you get, save all this money. And so um, in the, our company, uh, we have actually formed these MAP teams. We call them Mission Action Plan teams. They're 10 teams uh, that are uh, focused on each of the top 10 uh, of our climate uh, contributions, of our carbon contributions. And in each case, uh, everybody, every member of these teams, they're cross-functional, multidisciplinary teams. Every one of them has job descriptions and performance reviews and get bonuses tied to their carbon reductions. So last year, as an example, our logistics, well, these are the 10 teams. Last year, our logistics team uh, won the uh, prize. They got a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by doing a variety of things that I don't really have time to tell you about. But it just sometimes really simple things like separating the truck engine from the refrigerator. So even though we had to keep the reefer running to keep the yogurt cold, if the truck was sitting, then we'd shut the truck off like a hybrid. Um, fully loading our trucks uh, so that we're not sending less than truckloads so that the energy is spread over more cups of yogurt. Um, locating our distribution centers, teaming up with other companies. They got dramatic reductions. Um, I offer this slide. Some of you may know this story. It was reported in Newsweek, uh, no less. Um, this is an example of uh, what they did. Uh, a, a couple of uh, engineers at UPS figured out that with 95,000 trucks out there, what would happen if they avoided left turns? And you could say, well, what are they, you know, politically biased here or what? But no, what happens when you're going left is you're waiting for the traffic to go by and you're idling and you're burning your engine and it's unproductive. And uh, incidentally, I told the audience today, I gave this talk in England two weeks ago. No one knew what I was talking about. <laughs> but, but, um, but, I, uh, uh, but what they discovered is by taking three right-hand turns to get to Dan's house instead of one left, this is, what they, uh, this is what happened. They wound up with 95,000 trucks saving 3 million gallons of gas, actually diesel, $9.9 million by not going left. Now, let's pause right here and recognize this is not a political prescription, okay? Three rights never equal a left. But, 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 but this number is probably today, right now, it's probably 10.1 by not taking a left-hand turn. So when you know, the only two remaining Americans left who don't believe in climate change leave the White House in 290 days, uh, and those guys tell us we can't do this, you know, we can't run a successful economy, and, 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 and these guys can not stop taking left-hand turns, cut down their carbon footprint, and generate these millions, I beg to differ. We haven't even begun to explore the opportunities, which, by the way, for you, uh, the students here, to my mind, is the greatest job creation, economic development opportunity in the history of humankind. Righting our wrongs is uh, going to be a big business opportunity. So without going into it all, I just say that the 10 MAP teams work on all kinds of things. The milk team focuses on all the things I talked about. The packaging team focuses on our life cycle analyses on ever-shrinking. And, and I, I want to be clear with you, uh, very clear, that while you know, it's very nice of Dan to have said those nice things in the introduction, and it's nice that we win all these awards, we're, we're, you know, we are on the road of a continuous improvement process. We are not a green company. We endeavor to be green. 
But you need to understand that uh, we've got a heck of a long way to go. I mean, uh, success for me will be you finish the yogurt cup, and you finish the yogurt, and then you eat the cup. Okay, <laughs> we're not there yet. Um, quickly, I want to talk about organics in this context, and then I want to talk uh, briefly about revenue generation, and then we'll open this up. Um, this is a great corollary example to my wastewater plant. Um, in Brazil, where we get our organic sugar, uh, by converting over from conventional methods to organic methods, you can read all these bullets. I, I won't bother. Uh, but you can just accept that uh, the bottom line is right here. These guys, in switching over to organics, have, received, have achieved 10% increases in yields with a healthier ecosystem, with biological controls, with lower input costs, because now they're not applying synthesized pesticides or fertilizers. By the way, the traditional way of sugar cane growing is to burn off the crops at the end of the season, and that's a carbon output in itself. And, but it also releases the carbon to the atmosphere instead of putting it into the soil. So this is an enormous, this is exactly the opposite of what I showed you with the hypoxias. They are building their topsoils, as you can see here. They're almost at the uh, organic content of uh, native forests. Um, but here's the bottom, bottom line. When we started buying sugar from these folks, uh, organic sugar costs 100% more than conventional. And now it's exactly at parity. And so when I talk in my book, and Dan talks in his book about the economics of sustainability, this is it. I mean... Understand two things are happening here. One, their costs are going down because their yields are going up and their inputs are going down. The other is that the conventional system is inflating because underlying every cup of non-organic yogurt and every other non-organic item out there is an enormous amount of oil. It's there. You're not tasting it, but it's there. And we're paying for it in ever so many ways. By the way, organic still has some too. I don't want to suggest to you that organic is the is the answer, but it's got a heck of a lot smaller carbon footprint by fixing the carbon, and, and uh, it's anti-inflationary because with $112 a barrel oil headed to 150 organic sugar is going to be cheaper now. I, I'm heading down there uh, in June, and we, I believe that by June, organic sugar is going to be lower cost than conventional, the way things are going right now. So uh, let me not belabor this point. Let me quickly go to uh, the other half uh, of the equation. Up till now, I've talked, and my book gives a lot of examples of cost reductions. And by the way, the book talks about not just Stonyfield, but all kinds of companies that you would know. Honest Tea, obviously, I'm, I'm on their board uh, with Barry. Uh, uh, but uh, Walmart, Whole Foods, uh, Interface Carpet, many, many companies. Eileen Fisher, a lot, a lot of different disciplines. Um, and what we have discovered is that uh, in all of these cases, they're, they're as in all of commerce, there's two ways to make money. You can drive cost out of the system, as I hope I've illustrated um, in all these companies I illustrate in the book, or you can grow your top line, grow your revenues, and, and or you can grow your revenues. It's both. And in our case, I already told you earlier, my business model is the reciprocal of the conventional business model. Think quickly about the conventional business model for consumer products. With Coke and Pepsi... Their mission is to make the product as cheap as you possibly can. And there's nothing cheaper than sugar, water, corn syrup, solids, and CO2. And then take the big gross margin that's left over and use that to buy advertising, to pummel us with impressions that will lead us to become aware, try the product, repeat trial. You know, they're teaching this just up the street here. Um, uh, 
uh, and then uh, purchase, and then repeat purchase. And then eventually, over here, you hope that you get loyalty as a direct result of all those steps, all of which are quite expensive, by the way. The, and, the, and the problem is, is when Coke is spending, Pepsi sales drop, and when Pepsi's spending, Coke sales drop. So competitively, marketers will tell you advertising is decreasing in its effectiveness as a purchase influence, especially as we're getting messages through our cell phones and every other source of media out there. So, but the point is, we believed in investing in our product by putting money in, by paying our farmers a fair price. That's actually what this slide shows. This is what we paid organic farmers versus what the price goes to conventional farmers. And by trying to support, and you can see it's at an all-time high up here. And by trying to do that, we can't pass it all along to the consumer in price. I can't sell you, I would like to, but I can't sell you a $1.25 cup of six-ounce yogurt. You're not going to buy it, no matter how delicious and how many, we call them multiple organisms, are in every cup. Um, uh, so we have a high gross margin, therefore we can't buy advertising. We can't follow the Coke and Pepsi model. I mean, we have this kind of crazy idea that if it's going to be in a container for consumption, it actually should be food. I, I know it's radical. You know, no gelatin, no modified food starch, no red dyes. And um, so what we do is we engage in a bunch of guerrilla activities that I have to admit to you, in hindsight, arose out of necessity, not out of intentionality. Um, we use our lids, as I hope you've seen, our packaging to talk about causes. We partner with nonprofits through our Profits for the Planet program. We engage in PR and create consumer word of mouth and engage in brand partnerships. And we engage, I'm sure, I hope you've seen our lids. We, we do all kinds of things. This is a classic example where we partner with three nonprofits. We donate a portion of our Profits for the Planet money based on the number of votes that come in proportionally for the nonprofits. So that the nonprofits basically become our marketing partners. They tell people to you know, write in and, and ask for... A, you know, supporting National Wildlife Federation. By the way, this approach um, can boomerang, and I have to tell you this quick anecdote. Um, Nancy Pelosi in January had succeeded in getting organic food onto Capitol Hill. And unfortunately, because it's been highly, well, I, it's not unfortunate. I'm proud that it's been publicized, that I'm a big Barack Obama supporter and advisor. Uh, unfortunately, for the first two weeks, we had this battle because a bunch of Republican AIDS started blogging that uh, they didn't want our yogurt because it was a stealth effort to raise money for Obama. Um, but we got through that. Uh, it took about a couple of weeks. And unfortunately, when we finally got it done, we delivered our yogurt. Uh, our first lid, by luck, that third week uh, was about campaign finance reform. Um, and what it said was, in politics, the cream doesn't always rise to the top. Uh, and what you're seeing here is the, the return seed I got because they had all the yogurt taken off the shelf. So we lost our third week. They said the labels were unacceptable for the House of Reps because it was too political. You know, no sense of humor, these people. I, anyhow, quickly, um, you know, this, this has led us, this approach, this, this reciprocal model of Coke and Pepsi has led us to innovate all kinds of clever ways of creating what we call guerrilla marketing now. And it's become more of a science and an art. Um, the classic was in 1984 when the first major supermarket asked us, how are you going to advertise your product? Um, we didn't know because we had no money, but we had cows. So we put cows up for adoption. And what happened was you could get five, uh, if you send in five yogurt tops, you could get uh, a, a photograph of your cow. You could get a certificate naming you the co-owner of your cow. And then your cow would send you two letters a year. 
and the, and the letters would talk about all the things I was interested in, organics and synthetic growth hormone. Now, as you see, they're much greener. They, they send out quarterly emails instead of letters. Um, this is a, two classic examples. Uh, when we were breaking into the Chicago market, um, they told us that we were going to have to get to a 3.5 market share uh, in 90 days to stay on the shelf. Now, that would have cost uh, uh, about $10 million with conventional media buy, which we didn't have. Um, I knew that people riding the trains were avoiding the production of 45 pounds of particulate into the atmosphere, so I asked the Chicago Transit Authority if we could thank commuters for doing their part to stop climate change, which they thought was totally weird, but they said, why not? So we got on the train platforms, and in three days, we sampled 85,000 commuters. Uh, the Today Show came down and filmed us. The Chicago Tribune came down to see the crazy yogurt people giving out the yogurt cups. And Anyhow, we got to a 3.1 share in one week for a cost of $100,000 versus $10 million. It was a classic example of guerrilla marketing. Uh, so then we went to Texas where they don't believe in trains. And um, we knew that if America kept our tires properly inflated, we could get a 2 MPG increase in national fuel efficiency. So uh, we went with these big signs on the side of the road that said, we support inflation. And uh, you would pull off and we'd inflate your tires and give you a tire gauge with the Stonyfield logo and a coupon and a yogurt. And we had the same reaction. And we've done this endlessly. And this leads me quickly to, to the conclusion. I, I just want to mention... Uh, a nonprofit with which Dan is uh, familiar that we formed at Stonyfield called climatecounts.org. Uh, and what it is, and I'll, I have these flyers here if you'd like to see them or you can get it online. Um, what we do is we've actually, you know, we're, we're proud of our achievements to date and we're proud that we've proven that investing in, cli- in carbon reduction is profitable. But we know that we could be the most successful and profitable little yogurt company in the world and we're still going to have a dead planet. You know, and as David Brower said, there's no business to be done on a dead planet. So, um, uh, or as Lily Tomlin, my favorite philosopher, says, we're all in it alone. Uh, and I didn't want to be alone. So we created this entity that created 22 questions that asks, that is able to measure whether, assess whether a company is in fact committed to reducing their carbon footprint. It's not a carbon map. It's not a measurement of pounds of CO2 per cup of yogurt. You frankly don't care what the pounds are. That's certainly the average consumer doesn't. What you care about is whether as a company I'm committed because it is a continuous improvement process. And so we've scored the largest brands in America and uh, every company gets a score sheet like this. We use a couple of smart people like Jenna to help us uh, do these assessments. And this is what we wind up with. We wind up with Uh, scoring that uh, has just a couple of quick interesting points that I'll make before wrapping. Uh, For example, now let's start with my own. Uh, Here I am, a company uh, with a 63. This is our first year score. As I often tell audiences, if my daughter came home with a 63, she'd be grounded for three months. Uh, I hardly consider it a success to get an F. Uh, But it is an instantaneous measure. I will tell you that our 08 scores are about to come out. And we've done far, far better. We've, we're at least up to a B. But we're not an A, nor will anybody be an A. Um, look over here. This is kind of interesting. Uh, McDonald's has been talking about climate counts in their, uh, in their um, advertising. Why would they talk about it when they get a 22? Well, look at Wendy's and Burger King. That's exactly why uh, they talk about this as a wonderful tool that helps to improve uh, their, their way of looking at the world. And finally, uh, if I ask you who is the hippest company in America, you would 
probably all take the earbuds out, tell me Apple, and put them back in. And uh, not on climate. And as Dan and I know, Al Gore sits on that board. Uh, you have to do literally nothing to get a two. Uh, you, you, you don't, if you measure, you get a 10, okay? Uh, before you've even done any bit of improving. And by the way, big bad blue here, look at IBM. So, so we all, us progressives, need to be a little bit careful in our assessments. And the scores are here, you can see them. So I would uh, ask you to engage with me in a little uh, social change experiment. Pop this guy a note, tell him it's important. Uh, believe me, he's heard from about 15,000 people because I've been on a book tour for a few months here. Um, but anyhow, to quickly push to the conclusion, uh, this idea here is to say the following. Uh, I now know, I didn't know 25 years ago, I now know it's more profitable to reduce our climate footprint than not. I now know that uh, I can also use the carrot and stick approach to help other companies to get there. The carrot is obvious. Reduce your dependence on carbon, on, on fossil fuels. You will, it'll be your first national bank of conservation. You'll make, mo make money. Don't do it, and consumers are not going to support you. Uh, because, uh, as you know, when you buy a product, you're voting. And while we focus on our elections and the billion-dollar election we're involved with right now, the reality is we vote every day. And corporate America spends billions to tally those votes. And when you see these major companies uh, engaging in the business of carbon reduction, if you think it's because they read Dan's or my book and they've sort of seen Al Gore's film and become enlightened, think again. It's all about profitability. Uh, when DuPont got a 69% greenhouse gas reduction, it's not always so pure. They actually divested their most polluting industries. Uh, that's how they got there. But nevertheless, they're focused where the dollars are. And in my book, I, I go through all kinds of examples. I don't want to go on. Uh, I'll just drive to this point, which is uh, I love this commute. That's why I have this slide up. Um, it looks rather impossible to me. But, but I would leave you with this thought that you know, when it comes to business addressing climate change, really impossible is not an option. Uh, the IPCC, as you well know, tells us we've got 10 years left to adjust the trajectory of CO2 emissions. And, um, and the reality is that uh, it's now nine years. Uh, this is, we're not fooling around here. Uh, if we think we have immigration challenges, uh, think about a billion people uh, needing a new home. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and I guess the message I want to conclude with is that what I've learned in these 25 years is not only is it possible to run a business that's guided by these principles, and again, I don't hold myself up as any great success. We've had some success. We're on the road. But I would also tell you what I've learned is that, in fact, at the end of the day, it's us who are in charge. It's us consumers. Co business goes where we want to go. If you think that any product out there, its shape, size, color, cost, taste, or constituents is, is an accident, think again. Um, it's a result of polling what we want. Uh, my friend, the late Anita Roddick, said it best. She said, anyone who thinks they're too small to make a difference has never been in bed with a mosquito. Uh, that's us. Uh, and I know about mosquitoes. I'm from New Hampshire, right? It's my state bird. Um, uh, seriously, uh, this is where it's at. And what the book talks about is that this is, we have the power. And, uh, you know, we erase smoking. Uh, I mean, I was in Dublin the night that bars, pubs were no longer allowed to have smoking. They said that was impossible. Um, CFCs, you know the success story we've had. Uh, uh, I mean, seatbelts. Think of how many of us grew up, you know, bouncing around the cars. I mean, 
you know, you wouldn't think of this kind of thing. We can change. And it's just a question. The problem is, as consumers, we're just not terribly organized. And that's what Climate Counts attempts to uh, try to get us to do, to get a little more organized. So I've gone on longer than I want. You've been very patient. Thank you. Gary Hirschberg is the CEO of Stonyfield Farm. This was recorded on April 9, 2008. For more information, log on to yale.edu slash envirocenter.